AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for July 19th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we have a special guest, Dan Holden from Arbor Networks. Welcome, Dan. Glad Thank to you have you me. back. Yeah, it's, appreciate uh, it. Uh, your second time on Threat Track, is yeah. that correct? Yeah, you guys didn't learn your lesson the first time. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're really happy to have you here. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm the uh, Chief uh, Technology Strategist at Arbor Networks. We're well known for uh, internet visibility, uh, DDoS uh, mm -hmm. mitigation, uh, and over the last few years, uh, overall uh, advanced threat uh, and campaign monitoring, uh, things like retail, mm. uh, financial, geopolitical, which is always fun. And so I focus on how to leverage our uh, Atlas system, which is our worldwide monitoring system of botnets, malware, DDoS activity, and how to better leverage that inside of the Arbor products. All right, very good. So we'll be talking a little bit about how you're leveraging that and some of the findings along the way here. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. All right, very good. Uh, we have Matt Kaiser here. Welcome, Matt. It's good to see you. Glad to be back. And uh, online, we have Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. Hey, good to be here. And I'm guessing that we'll be talking about password guessing later today. Is that right? I would guess that's probably true. <laughs> okay, and I'm Brian Rexrode. And uh, so, Dan, let's go to you right, what I, right away. And, I, you know, you kind of brought up this topic of uh, IoT, and, uh, you know, we were talking earlier this is one of the things that we've been really paying a lot of attention to as well. So yeah. give us your, your perspective on this, and uh, we'll dig into it a little bit. Well, one of the, one of the researchers at Arbor once said, uh, the, one day the Internet of Things is going to become the botnet of things. Mm. Um, and we've recently uh, been seeing that, especially one of the things we were monitoring was uh, Lizard Stressor, which some folks might recall, a Lizard Squad's tool that was used over mm -hmm. uh, the holidays, especially uh, Christmas two years ago. Mm -hmm. And so this, uh, they've been expanding into the IoT region. Uh, a lot of folks have been leveraging uh, various IoT uh, technologies, uh, CCTVs, as we know, routers, and those sorts mm -hmm. of things have been popular. What I, what I find fascinating about this is not just the fact that it's IoT. I think any time we see new internet infrastructure, it always gets leveraged in some way, right? So mm -hmm. if you go back to any technology, I think we always freak out about, well, what are the security implications, whether it was virtualization or mobile or cloud. And so IoT is just the newest infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is, of course, we know that uh, it's growing like crazy, um, just like the rest of the internet. Mm -hmm. And so this is not only providing an opportunity for, let's say, a green space for the attackers in terms of uh, botnet growth, but also there are, of course, more and more devices uh, getting IP addresses, you know, mm -hmm. every day. So it's a hot spot, I would say, in terms of greenfield opportunity for those attackers. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to me, I guess, because a lot of these are, of course, uh, lightweight Linux-based sort of scenarios. So you're not going to have much room for security on any of them. Uh, of course, these are not generally companies that are uh, knowledgeable or invested in security, just like the mm -hmm. old days. And so, you know, there's not a whole lot there to uh, protect these systems. There's not a whole right. lot in it for the companies or vendors that are selling them to have them, you know, mm -hmm. any more secure or... Uh, changed you know so it, it is it's like the you know the 90s of uh, operating system days where just no one really knew any better right um, I also find it fascinating that the code is written in C and I'm a big C fan because I'm old uh, so <laughs> that helps because it keeps the code portable of course so they can do it on not only x86 but MIPS right. um, and whatever you know whatever you know whatever device it might be, they can still, you know, get this code to compile. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's just a lot of things that I guess, it, it's kind of like, you know, fashion, what's, what's old is new again. And uh, mm -hmm. especially in the world of DDoS, that has definitely been the case over the last few years. Um, and uh, IoT, while new, is also bringing in some of these, uh, I guess, older ideas where, you know, we've been seeing amplification attacks, which have been huge over the last few years, where, you know, the IoT stuff is more uh, about getting the larger botnet again. Mm -hmm. um, the other interesting thing, of course, is that attackers are always competing with each other, potentially, for um, 
bandwidth and even you know just space on a particular machine. You can have multiple malware infections. Mm -hmm. In the IoT world, they don't have to worry about that quite as much. Again, because it's greenfield opportunity. Right. Um, so the likelihood of you know there already being an infection and having to worry about that is not not as uh, not as likely at least yet. Right. So the, of course for them the bandwidth is is what they're after. Yeah. And that's absolutely. the other that's the other thing about IoT is these devices are uh, generally only doing a very small sort of chore, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's plenty of resources, generally speaking, to, to take advantage of. Yep, absolutely. So you said a lot of things there. Let's see if we can dig into a few things here. <laughs> First of all, you mentioned that this is the lizard stressor. And if I understand correctly, the lizard stressor source code had been effectively re released into the public yeah. domain. Yeah. And uh, so, some time ago. Yeah, so this isn't necessarily attributed to a specific group. That's right. Necessarily. It's that this code's available and we may have effectively script kitties. That's that right, are yeah, out that's a very good point. Doing this. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not Lizard Squad, it's, it's their code that they uh, had, had leveraged for these attacks a long right. time ago um, and had even you know, done some, I guess, commercial services. But yeah, it, it, typical in the DDoS space and, and mm -hmm. even malware and APT spaces. Either someone leaks the code or um, it just doesn't become as useful anymore, generally because it is leaked, and, mm -hmm. uh, or it just becomes a very, very popular family that's iterated upon and iterated upon. And uh, we've seen it in the DDoS world with uh, you know, Rust Kill that turned into Dirt Jumper that's had many variations mm -hmm. of Dirt Jumper. And in the malware world with you know, uh, Zeus and the Promenalka and to uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all the other variations. So it's, it's fairly typical for this sort of scenario. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I guess one of the observations, and you know, people chuckle when I mention this, but I think it's, uh, it, it's actually is at least as concerning that a lot of the users of the commercialized DDoS attack services are actually, you know, they're kids. They're just trying to do one up on the, their competition in a video game. Oh yeah. And they, you know, they haven't considered that the game is the boundary of the competition. Whatever it takes is considered, you know, with fair game from their point of view, but it's obviously an illegal act to be conducting denial service attacks. Like well, that. I always look at these sort of things, you know, historically, uh, and it's interesting because if you look at how so many reverse engineers came up, they came up not looking for vulnerabilities in, in you know, <coughs> mainstream products. They came up reverse engineering games to get mm. around things, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, even if you go way back, you know, uh, you know, everybody trying to just. Uh, figure out what the word was that you know the game wanted back in the 90s and that sort of thing. So in this case, uh, you've got the, the new generation, if you will, they're learning DDoS due to the games, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and it's just, it's tied to the same thing. And so they're learning a skill that, yes, is, is not only not legal, but it also potentially leads them down a path, um, you know, that, that can lead to other you mm -hmm. know, things, right? So whether that's, uh, you know, criminal activity, making money with that sort of thing, um, or just leading down a, a you know, um, maybe a path of other interest areas that have to do with, you mm -hmm. know, networking or security or whatever. And it, it, that, that can go wrong or right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I guess our advice here is stay in the game. <laughs> yeah. Straight and narrow here. Well, right. But the, I mean, that's, I, it, it, it's just one of those things where it's not going to go away. It's yeah. always been like that. It's, you know, the gaming industry has been plagued by these sorts of things for a long, long time, and it's, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, when you're playing games, you're probably going to get called a lot of names, and you're probably going to get DDoSed. <laughs> I get okay. a lot of names. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly by kids that age. I was, yeah. I was just going to say the, um, it's 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 quite often it is you know kids going after kids on games. Sometimes it's kids going after their schools as well, and that's that's somewhat popular as well. If you've got that's an been a situation test. as uh, yeah. as well. I think uh, a, a, a frequent uh, frequently schools need DDoS mitigation because of uh, testing activities or something, and they've. Uh, Kids yeah. trying to avoid the test for some period of time. I think they're going to take the test inevitably anyway, but it's uh, it's one of those. There was cases. there was a really interesting story about a, a school some time ago, um, and a couple of teachers had gotten uh, uh, accused of allowing cheating in their their room or whatever, um, and they had been put on leave for just an extended amount of time. Mm. 
uh, you know, they were essentially getting paid to sit at home for, you know, a year or whatever. And, and there hadn't been any sort of process to find out, right? They were just accused. Um, no one knows whether they did anything wrong or not. And so eventually the parents of the community actually got upset um, and uh, put up a website explaining the issue and trying to get the, the, the school board and school system to do mm. something. And someone finally got upset and DDoSed the school website. Um, so it's not whether the teachers did anything wrong or right. It was the fact that, that just due process wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, the school ended up getting DDoSed just because people were so upset mm -hmm. that essentially as taxpayers they were paying uh, these teachers and, and the teachers weren't working. And of course the teachers were upset too. Yeah. So it, it, you know, you just never know when one of these scenarios is, is going to pop up and uh, essentially uh, you know, make DDoS the mm -hmm. primary choice for voicing one's discontent. So do we need a new slogan that uh, cyber violence is almost never the right answer? <laughs> it's, uh, there's multiple ways to look at it. Uh, of course, you know, some people would look at it as the, the democratization of you know, mm -hmm. freedom of speech on the internet as well. Mm -hmm. um, so depending on probably who you are, maybe what country you're in, uh, there's a different view on that. But yeah. that's, well, that's true. There clearly are differences in different countries on what's, right, yeah. what's considered legal or not legal or, or correct. Correct. Yeah, Netherlands being the, probably yeah. the prime example there. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, you'd mentioned the IoT thing. I think I'm interested in your opinion on this. You know, uh, you cited specifically the, the CCTV DVRs yep. that have been a problem and some of the home routers have been a problem. Uh, that's certainly consistent with what we've been seeing. but. Not all, uh, IoT is a really general cate category of things. It, mm -hmm. It's basically anything that connects to the internet. Right. And uh, there, there certainly are things that seem to be doing it right so far. Um, it, 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 well, to that point, this is actually what makes it interesting from a, uh, again, a greenfield opportunity and, and threat standpoint, is any of these companies are likely reusing the code on a lot of different devices. So mm -hmm. let's just say hypothetically. You're a company that makes uh, toasters, ovens, and you know microwaves, and you use the same code base. And I say this because I want my oven on the internet at some point. I don't know if anybody else's daughter leaves the oven on, but mine does. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> that that code base gets used across multiple products. So yeah. regardless of whether it's a camera or a router or whatever, basically it comes down to what products does that particular manufacturer make, mm -hmm. and anything in their product suite potentially is. Uh, could be leveraged for you know Absolutely. an IoT-based botnet. Right. Yeah. So it, so if it's bad, it's probably not going to fix itself. It certainly. <laughs> right. They have to do something in order to get it fixed. Yeah. Well, exactly. And then you've got uh, IoT is interesting because you know it's one of those things where yeah, you know, patches are released, but how many people actually do that? Uh, is kind of the issue. So mm -hmm. there's not uh, the upgrade path for mm -hmm. a lot of these devices just isn't clear to you know the average home user. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unless it pops up and asks you. Uh, you know, think of any of our smart TVs or any of these things. You know, yes, can you go into the settings and say update? Sure, but how many of them are actually prompting you to update? Mm -hmm. It's not. In other words, it's not like your web browser or your OS where that's now kind of de facto. Yeah, it's the lack of a user interface that that's in your face. Like if you've got a, a cable point, TV yeah. box that says I've mm -hmm. got you know, an update for you, it'll show on a screen somewhere. Right. You'll sit through it and you'll be ticked off, you're missing the first five minutes of your favorite show, but it'll get updated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the router, it's, I mean, you'd have to like, intercept the person's traffic and insert a banner at the top that says, hey, by the way, yep. you gotta do something. Yeah. Well, and that problem only gets worse in the future, yeah, if it's, you know, if it's your toaster on the internet. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> is it going to prompt you to update before you put the bread in? <laughs> it's going to sit there with cold bread for two hours. Until right. We need out. to update your toaster before we can toast your bagel. Yeah. But just, just to example, <laughs> I think there, there certainly are examples where they are doing better. So I have a, uh, I have a DVD player that the uh, first thing it does when it powers up is it prompts if it needs to do an update. Well, so. then you've got the issue of various geographies and oh, yeah. market share, which yeah. is the other problem. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. you've got generations, so you'll have previous generations that are out there, mm -hmm. uh, which maybe you know, the company doesn't look at, you know, we don't sell that anymore, therefore we don't particularly yeah, care about it. Yeah, this is absolutely true. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, again, depending on which geography. So you know, that's the interesting thing from an attacker standpoint. They don't particularly care about the geography. The internet's the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so wherever they're able to you know, latch on to these systems um, is fine with them. It doesn't matter whether it's you know, US or on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. So a company, a company you know, down the road can fix the problem, but it doesn't really fix the problem from an internet scale standpoint. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, and I guess uh, so a couple of, so we talked about the patching, you know, a lot of these devices are on all the time. 
That's, right. Uh, yeah, that's and, another great point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I guess from the botnet operator's point of view, that's, uh, that's pretty what attractive. You want. But it's also pretty good from an update perspective. That is, uh, I was going to just use another example. I recently got a new home router, and uh, it also basically you had to turn off automatic updates so it actually has an update process and it didn't have default default passwords either so that was a, a another very valuable in my opinion put the sticker on the on the box or it has a sticker on the box a sticker in the manual that's yep. a unique password associated with that device mm -hmm. now i think john hogaboom had told us about a case earlier where he was able to and i think it was actually a different device but able to based on uh some information like if you Went, hit the login prompt for the device, it would give you some information that was sufficient to be able to figure out what that... What the algorithm is for the What the algorithm is oh, yeah. for the password. Nice. But, uh, so that obviously had a flaw in it, but it's at least a step in the right direction that yeah. these uh, you know, basic default and fixed passwords are being fixed. So there are organizations that are doing it right. I just wanted to make a distinction between what I like to call the internet insecure things. There are a lot of right. devices that are obviously getting connected. There really needs to be a solution around that. And then organizations that are really trying to do it correctly. And we shouldn't, you know, uh, consider, you know, just going with a stereotypical mind and say, you know, if it connects to the internet, it must be a problem. We need to look for the right attributes to make sure that no, that's uh, they a fair point, secure. especially if you think about it from a consumer standpoint. Yeah, um, <clears throat> if you're if you're looking at a shelf of products, um, you know, during the purchasing uh, decision process, does security ever enter your mind? Um, and you know, it does mine, well, but I'm, I'm a little weird. <laughs> well, yeah, no, which is which is great. I mean, a healthy paranoia is the way to survive on the internet. Um, and so, you know, that's a that's a good question to be asking yourself. Most people are looking at maybe features, price, and price mm -hmm. is generally speaking a big thing. Um, but that, you know, it, the the old saying, you know, you, you get what you pay for, could potentially be uh, an issue from a yeah. security standpoint. Shouldn't be always yeah. price. I, I think. Um, for organizations or, or device manufacturers to be making security a selling feature, I think is a, a very positive thing. And the, uh, you know, Underwriters Laboratories was working on a certification. I think it was actually being uh, uh, motivated in some way through the White House administration to try to get some, I'll, I'll call it internet safety requirements around devices so that they could get a, basically a label associated mm -hmm. with it. Uh, so that it could be basically put on the manufacturer, you know, you've, you've satisfied some basic criteria. I'm not sure how far along that's gotten. I haven't heard of, uh, much news about it in the last, uh, you know, four or six months or so. But You're right, though. It's a different scenario. I mean, 20 product. years ago, it was all about, well, we need to fix these problems, but nobody's aware of these problems. Mm -hmm. Today, you know, everybody sees these problems, right, regardless of... Uh, really what you know where you're at or what you're doing right I mean these stories are mainstream news and so um, I think it's getting down to the individual citizen level to where you're right it could actually affect consumer purchase because now mm -hmm. people are they've probably been infected by a, a you know malware before they've seen mm -hmm. a bad story whether it is geopolitical or a company getting breached or whatever uh, there's just more visibility for the average citizen these days mm -hmm. um, you know light years beyond 20 years ago, 10 years ago, um, even five years ago, probably. And mm -hmm. so it might actually end up being that we can get the process a mm -hmm. little faster than we could, you know, decades ago, due to the fact that these things are just so mainstream and people might actually start caring. Same way about cars, you know, mm -hmm. seatbelts, uh, you know, crash ratings, airbags sort of scenario. Um, you know, it, it might actually enable the process to become far faster than I think we've historically been used to, which would be nice. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, actually, it kind of inspired, a, 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 if, I, if my memory is correct here, I think it was Lee Iacocca that had proposed the airbags when he was with Ford way back when. Mm -hmm. And uh, people were like, this is ridiculous. Nobody would ever want that. Nobody would ever want something <laughs> like that. But I think it was later when he was with, he was, uh, with Chrysler, Chrysler that they ultimately... Uh, it became an industry standard or, you know, an, a, a very attractive option and ultimately became a part of every car that we have today. In fact, yep. there are like a dozen airbags in cars today. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm weird. I'm a big AMC history buff. So I like pointing out to people that AMC had a bunch of interesting features yeah. that were uh, standard in AMC vehicles before, you know, when, when the, the big three were still very optional. Um, yeah, yeah. So things like air conditioning and stuff that we take for granted these days. Mm -hmm. when, you, yeah, when, you, cool. when you drive old Jeeps, all of a sudden, AC is is no longer a luxury. It's, I, I wish I had it. <laughs>
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, denial of service attacks a little bit more. So these IoT devices, you may not actually see an IoT device hitting you directly. It may, in fact, be you know reflected off of something. I think you had mentioned that earlier as well. Yeah, amplification no. attacks or reflection attacks. And, and I tell you, that's I guess that's why I like these stories so much. Is again, uh, when you've been around a long time, it's the historical aspects uh, uh, that really are, are interesting because you think you've seen the last of something like charging. <laughs> um, and uh, even uh, you know, you know, I think most people are now familiar with NTP, but it was uh, again one of those. Uh, protocols that you really take for granted mm -hmm. and uh, you know people are familiar with DNS certainly but um, NTP you know overtook DNS as the uh, reflection amplification protocol of choice yep. um, and then you know you just look at the UDP uh, protocols that are next on the list and you know then there's SSDP mm -hmm. and a lot of things that you just would have assumed you know were kind of uh, historical things uh, you know protocols on the internet that are just aren't going to be that mainstream I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, absolutely. These these products, uh, you know, have these not only have these protocols, but have to have these protocols: DNS, NTP, things yeah. like this, um, and are fantastic for unfortunately reflection amplification attacks, yeah. which is the uh, big way that, or I guess, the way that uh, attackers have had really big DDoS attacks over the last few years. Mm -hmm. Just incredibly successful attacks are getting bigger of course the internet gets bigger so mm -hmm. you know that that trend is um, not a surprise I think but uh, the fact that they just keep going and keep going it definitely you, you know that you're in, in in the rat race so to speak um, mm -hmm. and so you've you've constantly got to be not only monitoring how you might get attacked what your infrastructure is but you also have to pay attention to how the attackers are maturing mm -hmm. um, you know I know everybody in the security space is oh we've got to figure out a way to you know stop the whack-a-mole or stop the rat race it's it's always gonna, <laughs> that is historically the way it is um, because you know that you're you're in that race and you're always trying to stay one step ahead whether you're the attacker or the defender. Right. Um, and DDoS uh, from a pure traffic standpoint is certainly like that. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the, the nice thing about having multiple protocols uh, and even having multiple aspects in your infrastructure to attack is it allows them to put together an attack that is uh, statistically possibly more successful because they can mix and match the various styles. Yeah. So I, I guess what we're, we're looking at here is there it was actually from Akamai's their quarterly report and uh, we can talk about Akamai here. Right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, they, they have a regular report much like and we'll talk about uh, Arbor's report uh, every, in a little bit. Everybody's here. got a report these days. Yes, everybody's <laughs> got a report. And I, I think there are uh, a lot of good benefits that are coming from the re these reports that are coming out. So I well, think it's really Well, most of all, uh, I think especially as as the industry has matured, uh, folks don't just throw data out there. They they tell you how they got it, mm -hmm. uh, not only how they got it, but how they interpreted it because right. that's the big issue with any of these reports is interpretation and uh, whether the, the data that the conclusion was drawn from is actually any good where it came from, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. so you, you can question all these things, you know, until um, the cows come home. But uh, I think all of the, the, the fact that so many folks in the industry now do this is allowed the reports and all these in, you know, companies to mature. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're good for lots of d different reasons, but I think the quality of the information is also improved, mm -hmm. not just the quantity. Yeah, we just have to be careful we don't make a career out of just reading reports. <laughs> there, there's a lot of reports, yeah, and they're getting reports. longer and longer. Yeah, and more complex because they—it's uh, like you said earlier—the old attacks don't seem to be going away, or the old problems don't seem to be going away. Yeah, we're just really kind of accumulating additional ones. So we have to still pay attention to the old stuff and uh, as well as the new stuff. And you know, you—you kind of glided right over. Uh, I think some important points. Uh, you pointed out earlier about uh, SSDP mm -hmm. and charging, which you know I guess some could some could argue that really uh, that has some purpose on the internet. It's really sort of a connectivity type thing. Do you really S need SSDP? It? It yes, charging no. Well, actually, it's S SSDP is really a LAN protocol. It doesn't mm -hmm. really even belong on the internet at all. Mm -hmm. It's a local protocol, 
and they're, so the devices that are actually were exposing that were ones that really should never, it's home routers and that sort of thing that yep, just didn't do the, block, the blocking and tackling yeah. from a security standpoint. Charging especially, you just wouldn't yeah. have expected to see that. Wouldn't expect to see it on there. I, I mean, I, I think yeah. I remember the first time I ever typed in that command and I thought to myself, what the hell is this good well, for? Yeah, why is it for? Yeah, it was uh, just a little toy this But yeah, no, you know, early <laughs> on, you needed to be able to test things yeah. and, you know, it was, it was useful. It is interesting that after all of these years that it's yeah it's it's not a surprise that it's present in in any type of uh, mm -hmm. operating system but it is a surprise after all these years that it's still on by default and in, in any meaningful way mm -hmm. i guess the other aspect of this is that the uh a lot of the attacks are sort of multi-vector that is what you yeah. know using like maybe a, a sin flood attack or and in combination with a dns amplification attack and uh you know, I guess it maybe makes it a little bit more complicated to, mit complicated to I, mitigate that. I always call DDoS a, it is, it's a, it's an active defense model mm -hmm. because the issue is is the, the attacker is generally monitoring the attack for a level of success. Mm -hmm. And if the defender does nothing, then it's going to succeed. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, because it, it, my point here is it's not a set it and forget it sort of scenario, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like, a, oh, we have a vulnerability, we've, we've pushed some uh, compensating control, or we have mm -hmm. malware and there's something in place. DDoS, uh, it, it is much more of a, a battle, so to speak, from an mm -hmm. attacker-defender standpoint. And so as the defender changes what they're doing or mitigates a particular type uh, of, of attack, the uh, attacker will monitor the, the, the success and change it. And that's been going on for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, and years ago, we saw they were mixing more application layer uh, activity, which was very, very popular and, and quite honestly very successful because they were generally going after web targets. Um, it, it did take more effort because you really have to care to go after an application because you have to learn the application to some mm -hmm. degree. Um, with, I think, reflection amplification, it has made the attacks just so big. Uh, and of course, there's always this lag of you know uh, defense capability across the internet. Um, you know, you can you can mix and match, and that's always I think been mm -hmm. very popular and will continue to be. Uh, but it just gives them you know, the Vegas odds are, are, are you know more in their favor, if you will, yeah. uh, if they've got multiple types of attack vectors. Yeah. So I, I think that's consistent with what we've seen as well. That is a uh, you know, and and I think what you're kind of pointing out behind the scenes is. It kind of depends on how motivated the attacker is. If they right. just throw something and then expect it to work. I don't know that that thing. works in Vegas. Playing more games probably doesn't increase your odds. <laughs> no, it doesn't increase <laughs> your odds. It does increase your odds of losing your money. It probably Yes, correct. Yes. It, yeah, we've, we've tested that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, Arbor Networks just came out with the uh, DDoS attack data for the first half of 2016. And uh, there were some kind of interesting statistics here. First of all, I, it, it kind of screams at you, 579 gigabit per second attack. Yep. You know, perhaps you can help put us, this in the context here. I, if I have a one gigabit pipe, how can I have a 579 gigabit attack? Well, it really is a, a data point to what we were just discussing with the reflection amplification. Uh, you go back a few years, the, the spam house attack was at the time the largest attack, and that was 300 gig. Uh, since then, things have just been rising gradually from 400 to 450. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, no surprise, this number will probably always be increasing as the Internet itself increases, as bandwidth increases, um, especially with the IoT issues, as we were just discussing. The, uh, the availability to the attackers to build and put together larger amplification reflection attacks is just uh, is not only still there, um, but in, in some ways is, is better and better. Mm -hmm. And so this is that along with the fact, of course, again, greater bandwidth always increasing on the internet. Yeah, you know, the, you, could, you could put together some formula that would, you know, make a prediction here, but you'd probably be wrong. Mm. So, <laughs> um, the other thing that I think is, is fascinating, and, and one of the reasons why I really enjoy DDoS is because it is so tied to uh, the news of the day as we were just talking about with schools. Mm -hmm. um, from a geopolitical standpoint, and we were talking about, you know, kind of the, the uh, some people look at it as their voice of uh, discontent. 
um, from a geopolitical standpoint, it's just a very, very popular tool. And so you see countries here, you know, USA, France, Great Britain, uh, and of course we're, we're, you know, of course uh, election season here in the states. There's been, uh, of course, lots of political upheaval in, in the UK, mm -hmm. um, and uh, terrible things happening in France. So these, not, you know, these these countries are also very mature from an internet standpoint as well. So I think mm -hmm. it makes sense from two standpoints. One, a geopolitical standpoint, and two, a overall internet maturity that these countries would, would pop up on this list. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's generally going to be your, your uh, let's, let's say, largest GDP type of countries. They're going to yeah. show up, generally speaking, just because there's more mature internet. And there's also more reliance on internet from a commercial and uh, communication standpoint. A lot more sensitivity if it's not working the way it's supposed absolutely. to be. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, and I, I guess the, the statistics here are pretty consistent. You know, uh, a growing number of events per week increases in the size of attacks, just in terms of the largest attacks, yeah. as well as the overall average of attacks, 46 attacks over 200 gigabits per second. And, uh, but I think, you know, perhaps the perspective, this data is coming from Atlas. Yep. And uh, that's basically a flow analysis that comes from a number of different sources. And so perhaps not all of this traffic ever really got to the destination. It may have well, so tell us a little bit about yeah. How that works. Uh, the way Atlas works from a DDoS monitoring standpoint is monitoring uh, the world's ISPs traffic. So this is uh, you know no one's monitoring all of the internet, mm -hmm. uh, but this is a, a a very good picture into uh, a a good chunk of the internet. Um, mm -hmm. and allows you uh, a visibility into one, of course, DDoS attacks and, and two, overall internet health. So also, uh, are there issues with the internet in a particular country, uh, you know, Syria or Egypt historically, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I, I, I hate to say it, these types of statistics are generally always the numbers are increasing. Again, just the fact that the internet is the always internet's growing. getting bigger. Yep. Uh, DDoS is, is more and more of an issue. It's, it's less about anything getting um, you know, better, because that rarely happens. It's more mm -hmm. about how things are changing and how the attacks are changing and why they're changing. Yeah. Okay, uh, so Jim, you've been uh, pretty quiet so far. I think uh, this is your chance to shine and tell us a little bit about, of course, you know, a lot of this IoT accesses through password guessing activities, and I think uh, Jim's going to tell us a little bit about some of the password guessing activity we're observing. Yeah, definitely a, a large correlation in the uh, the two two issues, yeah. yeah. So go ahead, Jim. Tell us what you got. A couple of weeks ago, Joe Harton was on the show and was talking about the um, CoreLogic's uh, analysis of the LinkedIn password breach, which just got me thinking it's been six months since I took a close look at what we're seeing in our honeypot, so I figured it was time to do another one, of, uh, an update on on what we're seeing there. And as I say every time we do one of these reports, you know, the the honeypot itself has been out there for a number of years. Uh, Kippo has been installed there for five years. Next week, uh, celebrate the fifth anniversary. So we've been collecting SSH. Um, and POP3 uh, password guessing attempts for for a number of years. Unfortunately, I still am not catching Telnet guessing attempts. And you know, since that's been at the top of our internet weather for the last couple of months, I'm hoping soon to be able to include Telnet password guessing attempts in this as well. But you better um, have a big machine for that, Jim. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but uh, the the logs are relatively small. So yeah, all right. But um, yeah, so we've in, since we started uh, capturing these passwords, we've seen a total of eight and a half million attempts. You know, this is just uh, this is primarily on one honeypot that is sitting out on the internet, mm -hmm. not advertised any place. Folks have to, you know go scanning for it to find it to, to make the attempt. So uh, in those in the first two years that we had the honeypot up there, we only had 300,000 uh, attempts. In 2014, we had two almost 2.5 million. We had over 2 million in, in 2015. Now in 2016, the number of guesses are back down. In the first six months, we've only seen 
about 70,000 password attempts. Mm. Uh, but what, I, what I've got here are a few slides that are the analysis of what we've seen and what the folks were trying to do when they attempted to get into the honeypot. We've seen in the last six months, um, the largest password guesses were 60 character passwords. In the past, we've seen uh, upwards of uh, 100 character or more passwords. The, one of the interesting things that came out of the analysis of the LinkedIn passwords, and again, we're, what we're analyzing here is what we're seeing folks guess as opposed to what people actually used, which is what comes out of the, you know, the CoreLogic report on the LinkedIn password. But um, one of the things that Joe mentioned when he was talking about the LinkedIn passwords is that the median length was getting longer and they were, and the passwords were getting more complex that folks were actually using, which I think are both good signs. What I, so when I looked at the passwords that we've seen attempted in the last six months against our honeypot, the median length of the passwords guessed was six, which was a quarter of all of the passwords guessed. Now, that needs to be taken with a little grain of salt. This is a Kippo honeypot, and part of the uh, reason for it is to let people actually get in to see what they would do once they got in. Mm -hmm. So the actual root password for this honeypot is one, two, three, four, five, six. So once they, you know, if they're guessing numeric passwords and they get to that one, they're going to stop because then they got in. So that skews the, uh, the data a little bit. So, the, but a quarter of all the passwords that were guessed against this honeypot in the last six months were of length six. There were a total of 69,901 guesses, of which 7,800 or 11% were complex. Complex here means at least three of uppercase, lowercase digits and special characters. I, I thought it was interesting that 8.85% 8 of them were only special characters. Uh, and 37% were only alpha you know, upper and lower, and 19% were only numeric. Again, that's skewed a little bit because the actual password that will get you into the honeypot is all numeric, so. So, Jim, I, I have to ask here, you said only special characters, so how many of those passwords were just asterisks? Because that, isn't that what that shows up on the... Absolutely. <laughs> isn't your password seven asterisks? No matter what I type, my password is always asterisk. 60 of them. Uh, 60 of them. I'll have to actually go take a look at that. I, <laughs> I, but one of the interesting things you'll see a little bit later on, the second most popular one was only special characters, and it was only two characters long. Yeah, that's how, Yeah, that's true. I remember. Okay. So just a little... ASCII histogram of the password lengths, you can see the um, most of them, you know, the, the largest percentage of them were six characters, and the median was actually six. So this long tail here is very long and very shallow. Mm -hmm. So just for a point of reference, in, in the late 2014 and early 2015, we had this group out of Russia that was doing a lot of aggressive password guessing attacks against SSH. And so here we see in early 2015, up through about the beginning of May, we were seeing you know, lots of attacks, you know, 30, 40,000 uh, probes a day against this one sensor. That dropped off at the beginning of May and then 6,000, 8,000 a day, and then dropped off back to the background level that we had seen in prior years in early June, except for the one little spike in the middle of June. Now, if you look at 2016, our busiest day in 2016 has only been 8,000 probes. You know, it's, it's fallen back to a, a more constant level, although you can see they're ticking up a little bit here in, in June, the, the numbers are a little higher than they were earlier. But in general, we're not seeing anywhere near the kind of traffic we were seeing when that those Russian uh, 
systems were doing a whole lot of SSH password guessing in late 2014, early 2015. Mm -hmm. In 2015, you can see our top 10 passwords, one, two, three, four, five, six. Again, because that's the actual password that's skewed a little bit, what they might actually otherwise guess. And then admin root password, the kinds of things that get used as default passwords. In 2016, in the first half of 2016, what we're seeing is one, two, three, four, five, six is again the top one, but it's actually by quite a bit more than it was in. 2015. And that second one there was the real surprise to me. The second most popular password we've seen in our honeypots in the first six months of this year is exclamation at sign. Which is shift one, two. Mm -hmm. hmm. <clears throat> no idea what, whether they really believe that will be successful in getting them in but that is the, the second most popular one we've seen so far this year. And then the usual ones, admin, root, password, support, UBNT, default, which are you know the kinds of things that often get used as default passwords. So. That, that bang at one is, is unique enough that you might be able to figure out the size of, because you assume that the, the participants in a particular botnet all have the same word list that gets loaded into all of them. You might mm -hmm. be able to sort of see roughly the size of that botnet if you could, because it's unique enough, I think. I don't mm -hmm. think too many people would have that in there unless there's something about that sequence of characters that we don't know about yet. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there are certainly, in fact, a, the long tail might be a good indication, even a better indication of the size if you can get the uniqueness oh, of uh, particular, particular unique passwords in it. So, mm. What do you think about that, Jim? No, I, I agree. That might be an interesting uh, analysis that I haven't tried yet to see if we can pick out some of the, the groups of actors here. Going back to comparing what we've seen in the first six months this year to last year, last year we saw two orders of magnitude more guesses trying to log into a username root. Since most of the devices that are running SSH are going to be some sort of a, a Linux variant, you know, they're going to try to get the account that's got the most privileges. But in, in 2015, that was two orders of magnitude more guessing of root than any of the others. And then came admin, the UBNT, which is default username for the Ubiquities network equipment, then administrator user test, and so forth. In 2016, what we're seeing is root is still the most popular but it's only about one order of magnitude more frequent than admin, UBNT, Oracle, test, user support. Admin is often, you know, this default username on a lot of these home routers. UBNT is the default username on the Ubiquity Network's line of, you know, routers and so forth. Not unsurprising that those are guessed most often. Pi made the top 10, so folks trying to find Raspberry Pis that are connected to the network. Yeah, that was the one that stuck out for me as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people actually have their Raspberry Pis connected to the network. I've got a Raspberry Pi honeypot at home connected to, <laughs> to the network. The next slide here is the actual client strings. When, you, when you're doing SSH communication, the server and the client each exchange you know, strings to identify themselves. And so I kippograph graphs these. I took a look at them the last time when we looked at 2015. So I decided to look at them again here for the first half of 2016. That top one, SSH2.0-putty, is actually an attempt to look like somebody's using the putty Windows SSH client, but that's not the real string that the actual putty client uses. So this is some tool that is pretending to be putty, then the libssh are all scripted tools. I have no idea what this new one that came in at number 10 was, the Granados mm -hmm. 1.0. That's not one I'm familiar with. Looking at this, it gives us some feel for the, the tools that folks are using for their SSH password guessing. The vast majority of this is scripted. Mm -hmm. Moving on, the top 10 IPs that were doing the probing, 
not going to actually particularly dig into any of these, but you know, we out of the 69,000 probes, you know, 2,200 of them came from one this top IP. This second most was in the same network, so I'm assuming those are related bots that are doing the scanning. The interesting thing to me was the distribution of where these probes were coming from. 80% of the probes that we saw were coming out of China. Then the next 8% out of Ukraine, and then 6% from the U.S., 6% from Colombia, which really surprised me. There were a total of 20 or 30 other countries that were so small they kind of disappeared in the noise here. The, the Colombia really surprised me there, that there were almost as many coming out of Colombia as out of the U.S. I wasn't at all surprised that most of them were coming from China. Yeah, that that is interesting. I mean, certainly Colombia is a, a up-and-coming country <clears throat> that's uh, growing and is far more a secure place than it, than it used to be just a few years ago. Um, but I would almost wonder if perhaps someone... Uh, some entity found a, a large chunk of uh, hosts that they could leverage specifically mm-hmm. in Colombia. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's the case. Right. They, mm-hmm. they found some, some set of devices or, you know, that had an open back door. Some, or, right, some infrastructure ripe for takeover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and Jim, I think it's perhaps notable that you're measuring, I think, if I'm reading this correctly, you're measuring the number of connections as opposed to the number of unique addresses that are creating those connections. Is that that, that is correct. As I said, this is a, a honeypot where part of part of the purpose of it is to see what the bad guys do once they get in. Mm-hmm. Once folks successfully get in, about 10% of the probes were successful. What did they do? So this is the a graph of how many commands were run on a given day by folks who successfully SSH'd in. And you can see there are folks getting in on a pretty regular basis and doing something. You know, for, for most of the first six months of the year, there have been an average of 50-ish uh, commands they've attempted to run. But once they get in, the honeypot looks like it's a Linux box. So... Obviously, most of the the malware that gets picked up through this particular honeypot is going to be Linux malware. the The most popular downloads, you know, most popular things, tools that the once they successfully SSH'd in, what did they reach back out and you know what tools did they try to download onto the box? To most of these are are Linux. Tools, scanning tools, DDoS tools, mm-hmm. uh, a few uh, privilege escalation tools. The interesting thing that I noticed as I was doing the analysis to prepare for this today's episode was that the largest proportion of the tools were downloaded from just four IP addresses. To me, suggests that it's probably... The, the folks who were successfully getting in were probably in just a couple of botnets, and these are the IP addresses where they stashed their tools. Mm-hmm. So that, that might also be another way of, of trying to figure out the number of actors that were participating in this activity. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's just a, a quick look at what we've seen in, in that uh, Kippo honeypot mm-hmm. over the last six months. Something I like to do periodically, and uh, Joe's story a couple weeks ago reminded me that it had been a while. So yep. I thought I'd share it. Thank you, Jim. So uh, I guess one of the things that's sort of, a, I guess, a pop quiz here, for anybody that might be interested in running a honeypot, you know, you, you alluded to or you discussed, you know, the fact that they were doing these guessing activities and they got into this thing and they tried to do downloads and they might try to do download service attacks. What are the kinds of controls that are recommended to put in place if somebody were to do this to make sure that they're not becoming a part of the problem? Yeah, well, it, uh, any place that I've got a honeypot set up, I have a variant of the honey wall that the uh, HoneyNet project used to 
maintain, although that's been, that hasn't been maintained for some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, uh, I limit the amount of outbound traffic so that we don't become part of the problem. Using snort inline, I can, uh, in some cases, as long as it's not encrypted, defang the, you know, their exploit attempts going outbound. The honeypot environment, uh, when they successfully get in, it looks like a Linux system, but if you poke around in it too much, you'll discover that it's there's only a handful of things that you can really do. Mm-hmm. You can download tools, because I'm going to let them download their tools so that I can see them, but there isn't a whole lot that you can do um, outbound beyond you know, a wget or a curl mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yep. Um, those those are some of the basic controls that I put on on the honeypots that I've got. Okay. Um, if I'm if I'm running you know a a WordPress honeypot or something like that, you know, basically I'm only going to let in uh, the the exploit attempts to try to capture the. Um, the attempts and and maybe let them try to download additional tools, but beyond mm-hmm. that, I'm not going to let them execute anything else. That kind of thing. All right. I guess the one other thing I was going to offer is to make sure it's isolated from any enterprise assets, so that uh, there's any if there's any possibility of something going wrong, you've got a safety valve yard. Oh. Right. Yeah. If, if these if anybody actually were to manage to break out of of the you know the limited environment into the the host OS on the honeypots that I run, they're not going to be able to to jump back into our enterprise. You know, they're all firewalled off mm-hmm. and kept outside. All right, very good. Thank you, Jim. That was uh, a, a very informative report. So we're going to go over to the lighter side here with you, Matt, here. And uh, it's very, very anticipated second season of Mr. Robot. Yep. I think um, you're a big fan. I am. I'm a big fan. I'm becoming a big fan. I think you kind of encouraged me to it partly because of its technical accuracy. So give us a little bit of a rundown of what you've been observing and... Uh... Sure, so the, the second season kicked off and they've had actually uh, one long extended first episode broken into two parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to go too much into the plot because I know people haven't seen it, but I'm going to spoil some of the tech. So if you guys, you know... Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> this is the time to fast forward to, to the internet weather if you want to do that. <clears throat> yep, our, our crew is covering their ears. Um, <laughs> So the, the cool parts that I've really enjoyed, the first part was the smart home hacking scene. Mm-hmm. And there is a very convincing scene in which um, someone has a very high-end apartment mm-hmm. um, and things in her apartment start misbehaving. She's got a panel a on A little the, over the top. Uh, a little <laughs> over the top, but, <laughs> but not, not too far out of the realm of, right. of impossibility. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if you're using the, the panel that she's got starts, you know, it's not like it's freaking out and there's skulls and crossbones everywhere. It's mm-hmm. not like a, the movie Hackers. It's, you know, she makes a change it jumps back. She makes mm-hmm. a change, it jumps back, her TV turns on, her lights start flickering. Mm-hmm. All of these things are definitely it's to instill the fear in you of IoT. Well, the, <laughs> maybe, maybe so, uh, rightfully so fear. Right, but, um, right. And at, at that point, it's, it's revealed that you know, the, the house is being hacked, she has to leave, and some of our favorite hackers show up and mm-hmm. take the place over, which mm-hmm. is you know, not a bad way to get your own base of operations is to mm-hmm. hack an apartment. <laughs> um, so that was, pr- that was pretty interesting, and I was watching my, this is, this is, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I thought was really interesting is ransomware shows up. Right. Gets used, it summons, infects an entire corporate network with a single thumb drive of ransomware, mm-hmm. which spreads to the machines, and a very convincing looking ransomware screen shows up mm-hmm. with a countdown and instructions on how to pay with, you know, probably Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, this is, I was really impressed because this is exactly how it would go down. You know, mm-hmm. it, sometimes it takes mm-hmm. just one small infection to take down an entire network, depending on how it's set up and what kind of propagation the malware actually has. Well, and I think that's a, perhaps, a per, so I'm going to start poking holes here. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, there certainly are opportunities to propagate ransomware. One of the things that was a little bit, uh, I guess, left ambiguous in this particular case, most of the ransomware that exists doesn't really have a self-propagating technique so much. This is true. Uh, perhaps the USB devices, but it's not going to go entirely through. And I have to think that folks, if you're working in the financial industry and the amount of investment they put into IT security, uh, two things. One is, 
I, I can't believe that the IT guy himself that injected this would be able to get away with that. <laughs> That's true. An investigation then, would have occurred. <laughs> and the second aspect of it, could something propagate across the enterprise as easily as it appeared to have done. Right. But and I think they're fudging the details a little bit yeah. because you can definitely have that kind of impact if someone's using a shared drive. Yeah. We've seen cases where shared drives get infected and effectively yeah. you've taken the 100, 1,000 people out of, mm -hmm. out of commission. Mm -hmm. Whether it shows up on their screen with a gesture face or not is, yeah. you know, that's probably where they're playing with the details. Yeah. And an interesting little note, the gesture face for those of us who are keeping an eye on the world of hacking, that's actually the logo for the jester. He's a known, um, I'd call him an American patriot hacker. People would say mm -hmm. he's, yeah, I know. Kind of like the, I guess, uh, like the Punisher. Uh, a little like the Punisher, yeah. mm. um, where he, he's gone out, of, he's gone and-, and Vigil, Vigilante. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's, he's attacked different jihadi websites for what he believes in. Right, right. And apparently they worked something out with him to allow him to appear, quote unquote, in the episode by using his logo because as you would guess by the name, the jester, you know, he's not mm -hmm. forthcoming with his real identity. Mm -hmm. um, there was, a, I think, there which was is a, amazing that it's gone this long. True, yeah. uh, and he's of course well followed, and uh, his exploits are well known, and and still nobody knows. And him. he has his own merchandise, apparently. I, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's it is hard. Uh, it, it is both easy and hard to be anonymous on the internet. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, it, it, when you have enough people looking at you. That's mm -hmm. you know generally some some it's so some upset slip up happens. Yeah. It, right. It's so easy to make a small mistake. Yes, mm -hmm. and, and particularly um, since the motivations can be conflicting. That is, uh, somebody that might be motivated to try to get attention is going to tend to lead create leads toward themselves. Yep, mm -hmm. in in that process. So. So. Um, another interesting. I think I'm I'm not really sure. I'm not familiar with the individual, but at least one. Hacktivist slash activist made an appearance in, there's a scene in a, in a convenience store and he's mm -hmm. one of the people in line. They sort of snuck him in as a, I guess, a, a tribute to him. Uh. Um, and the one thing that it's not really related to hacking that I thought was a brilliant move is, we know Sam Esmail likes to make references to different directors and movies. Mm -hmm. They snuck in a music cue from the original version of The Manchurian Candidate. <laughs> and I, I, I was watching this and I can't, I can't believe this. And I had to go back to like YouTube and find a copy. Like, that's mm -hmm. absolutely what they did. So I was, mm -hmm. I was thrilled with that. So Interesting. It's my little so, fanboy uh, moment. Looking out for the Easter eggs that are, they're, they're tossing in there. And there's a few more. I didn't go things. through them, but there's, there might be some something else going on that hasn't been publicized yet. There's QR codes and IP addresses and things that are being yep. released. So I don't know where that's going, but I'd like to see where it does. All right, so if any of our uh, watchers have uh, any interest in sharing their findings, we got a, a, a fan here certainly that you can uh, share that with. And I'm, you know, I'm also, <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, but that's uh, one program I have been re watching lately. And uh, look forward to more of the season. Me too. So let's take a look at the internet weather report for the last week or so here. And uh, first of all, top 10 most probe ports is actually from <laughs> July 18th, uh, yesterday activity. And uh, top of the list, port 23 uh, TCP. We'll talk about that a little bit more. We've already had a little bit of a discussion with Dan here on the IoT things that are related to that. And then a couple more observable items here. Obviously, there are three <laughs> ports that show up up on the, this top 10 list that have elevated in terms of their ranking significantly. That's port 143 TCP, uh, that I believe is, uh, is uh, IMAP, uh, port 25 TCP, that's SMTP, and then port 995 TCP, and I believe that is uh, POP3 over SSL, I think. I think so. Yeah, so in any case, uh, it's all of them related to email, uh, either receiving or sending email. So we're gonna take a little bit of a closer look at that as well. Uh, other ports that are on this list, uh, not really any surprises, and uh, port 3389 went down a couple of uh, ranks here. All of these have been relatively stable over time. Uh, and then looking at the most sources doing the probing, um, I think I've been referring to, it's almost comical what proportion here is associated with port 23 TCP. I think last week we reported on the order of 640,000 sources, unique sources in the course of the day. This one shows 740,000 unique sources. So we're up, relatively speaking, from last week's report. Not a lot of significant movement in terms of the ranking here. And uh, as usual, I tend not to report on the uh, ICMP movement because a lot of that actually is kind of backscattered 
from some of these other activities that are taking place. Looking over the, uh, I think John Hogeboom had covered recently, or actually, I, I think perhaps I did as well, uh, over the last year related to uh, Port 23 activity. Uh, but right now we're looking at 90 days of activity on Port 23 TCP, that being Telnet, a frequently targeted port associated with uh, security surveillance camera DVRs that uh, unfortunately is exposed to their net, a resurgence of these. Uh, Dan, I think you'd referred to the 90s in terms of locking down <laughs> operating systems. And, uh, and by the way, uh, we didn't really talk about this. You mentioned it's coded in C, allows compiling on multiple platforms, yeah. oftentimes ARM processors or MIP processors, right. which are embedded in a lot of these systems. Personally, I blame a little bit on the configuration that's available in the embedded, basically the uh, emulator systems for the development platforms yep, right. for these processors. That is, it comes with a Linux install, it's wide open, has all the problems, all the holes already built in. So if somebody's trying to cobble together a uh, IoT device and put it out on the market, uh, no help comes from uh, yeah. the toolkit that comes. It's, but, it's, it's, I, I mean, I referenced the 90s because, you know, what would what would it be like mm -hmm. if you had just gotten a, uh, a SunOS or a uh, CGI box, mm -hmm. right? You're, <laughs> those aren't the things you're thinking about. Right. Uh, it's wide open, but, you know, you're developing an application or hosting some email or whatever the case might be. Uh, it's just not something you think of. So, yeah, I, you know, it, yeah. It, it's a little, not to mention Telnet. It's a, it's a little 1990s. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> So just looking at the bottom graph here, that's the number of sources that are scanning on port 23. Uh, it's relatively stable over the last week or so. You can see a little bit of a, you know, it's sort of a daily diurnal activity associated with that, nearly at the level of record levels that we've seen over the last several weeks, on the order of about 300,000 sources in a given hour. And as I had stated earlier, on the order of 740,000 sources just seen yesterday. And then looking at the, uh, the activity that we're seeing, scam probes on email-related ports in the general category. So port 25 being SMTP, uh, 465 being SMTP over a secure connection, a TLS or SSL. And then uh, POP3, port 110, and port 995 being POP3 over TLS or SSL. And then port 143 being IMAP, and then 993 being the uh, secure version of that. So I combine them all together here. You can see the different colors. It's probably not very easy to see which color is which here. But the significance is you see sort of very spiky scanning activity. All of these tend to be very related. It's generally resource or research organizations that are performing this activity. So I wouldn't consider it to be significant and from a security standpoint, uh, although some of the information that's gathered about this actually does end up getting posted on the internet available for other organizations, perhaps nefarious ones, to take advantage of. Uh, and then it's other also uh, worthy of observing that SMTP tends to be targeted more frequently than these other ports. And uh, you know the, the motivation there would be perhaps obvious. Uh, if you can find an open SMTP server that's willing to forward e email for you, you can use it for spamming operations. And so they're always uh, organizations that are interested in doing spamming looking around for uh, open SMTP servers. Yeah, it's, it's a bit funny. You can think about it. Basically, if someone cares about all the ports, they're doing research. Mm -hmm. uh, if they only care about one or a handful of ports, they're probably a bad guy. Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, generally a good point. Uh, these resource organizations are probing a number of other ports. They right. tend to be associated with ones that are associated with known vulnerabilities. Um, I think they believe they're doing a good thing. Uh, I think the fact that they're posting on the internet is kind of self-defeating in that re in that regard. Uh, I think there's a, the philosophy behind it is sort of a shaming organizations, but you have to know that it's there in order for that to be meaningful yeah, or helpful. Point. Yeah, because if, if you're posting it and everyone in the world knows about it except for the Yeah, if all the guys that are doing the research looking for it yeah. know about it, and the, guy, the folks that don't realize that they have that problem sitting out there don't know. <laughs> They're more likely really to become the victim again yeah. than to anything else. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. So um, there, there's still, I think the concept perhaps is the right mindset. Perhaps the execution needs a little more effort. I, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on that topic, but nevertheless. Uh, and the next item here, this is actually a little bit, of, perhaps a little bit of a good news story. We've been consistently reporting scam probes and sources on port 53.4.13 UDP. Uh, this is that backdoor associated with NetIS routers where a script can be injected into that back port, uh, back door. And uh, what we're actually seeing is a significant 
decrease in the number of sources as well as the number of probes on this port. Now, I think um, a couple of weeks ago, John, John, and I think you were there, Matt, on the program, mm -hmm. talked a little about the uh, the comb effect, the, the look of this uh, particular oh, graph. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is one of the ones that a research organization is doing that sort of spiky probing looking for, whereas the botnet activity tends to be a little smoother and consistent in, uh, uh, in that activity. So uh, the other observation here is that generally what this is telling us, because there is a significant reduction, uh, and you can see sort of that telltale botnet you know, spike of activity, a bunch of bots have been told to do the scanning. I'm looking at the bottom graph predominantly here. A bunch of individual addresses are doing scanning at the same time, and then they sort of tail off altogether. That's a uh, relatively good indication that it's really just kind of one group predominantly generating a, most of this activity. That is, uh, if you had lots of different botnets, you'd see a lot of little, you know, blurriness in the activity, relatively speaking. So um, perhaps it's good that they're not doing so much scanning, but perhaps they've already built up the botnet. They're using it for other things. The fact that the scanning has gone away is not yeah. an indication the botnet. Which gone away. which tends to happen quite a bit. You you, you it's a it's at what point in the business process is the mm -hmm. attacker. So in this case, you're right. It could totally be building the botnet. And then in, the, in terms of the business process, they then switch over to a monitoring the, of the ROI of the campaign mm -hmm. and don't revisit the scanning and the building of the botnet until six months later when the ROI has started to drop on the campaign. Right. So we see mm -hmm. that quite often. Yep. I'll throw out an alternate theory. Somebody is aware of the fact that they've got these, these devices on their network they're scanning very specific ranges, which would, I think, those, those are, to me, relatively thin slices and peaks mm -hmm. in time and not a lot of uh, volume vertically. Potentially, they're just maintaining that list of what do we still have to mitigate. That's a possibility. Yeah. That's certainly a possibility, yeah. So, all right, good. Well, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. Uh, Tell us about your Mr. Robot observations, or if you have questions or suggestions about what we should cover in the program, uh, please uh, let us know what you think. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube, as well as it's available as an audio podcast on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. And uh, Dan, I think you have a Twitter handle as yeah, well. Yeah, uh, at Desmond Holden. All right, very good. So at Desmond Holden, and uh, so if you have any comments about uh, uh, Dan's comments here or would like to share something about the program, please let us know. Uh, Dan, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you all having me back. It's always fun. It is always fun. Uh, Matt, thank you for joining. Sure thing. Jim Clausing, thank you for joining and uh, for the rundown on the password guessing activities. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.